Let's remain standing as we seek the Lord in prayer. Lord, coming before your word now, we pray that you would open it to our understanding. I pray that we would come hungry to hear, to learn, to be challenged, convicted, to grow. I pray that you would deepen this church in the word of God. I pray, Father, that by your grace we would respond in faith. May you, by your spirit, teach us and prepare us, strengthening us in our walk of faith. And for those who know not Christ as Savior, we pray in their behalf that you would draw them to the light of the gospel and help them to find within rivers of joy in relationship with you, our refuge. Thank you for these songs of the new life we've been privileged to sing as your people. And we pray your blessing upon this time in the word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In our preparations for today's service, Pastor Rich found cobwebs on the pulpit. If that doesn't speak volumes right there, who would have imagined that for 11 weeks this place of worship would remain empty, standing still, unless we count last week when Richfield Bible Church met here and we're so thankful that they were able to, they planned to meet here this evening, I believe, and I think did last night as well, so we're grateful for that, but it's been a painfully long time of separation, I would say. For 11 weeks, we've been deprived of our calling to gather as a display of Christ's victory over death, as a testimony of his saving grace in Christ as his called out people. But today, we rejoice with the psalmist as we have already in the call to worship. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. We gather now as the house of the Lord here in this place. We've returned today to this place of worship. We've returned to this building. We have not returned, it seems, to the same world. Since our last meeting as a church, the travails of this nation, of our city, have erupted into outrageous instability, confusion, and loss. The anguished cry for justice in light of sins committed against God in the death of George Floyd ignited a powder keg of sins committed against God in the ravaging of our city. This has all happened before. It will all happen again, barring God's intervention. But when nations rage and kingdoms totter, We are compelled to determine where our faith rests. This is a question everyone is asking. Not just the religious, but all people are seeking to determine where does my faith rest? Where is my hope? Where is the refuge for our souls? I invite you to Psalm 46 this morning, which declares that God is our refuge and asserts the sufficiency of His presence with us through life's tumultuous storms. Let's set Psalm 46 first within the context of the Psalter itself. Psalms 46, 47, and 48 are sometimes referred to as depicting Zion theology. That is, they picture God as the sovereign warrior king ruling the world, blessing his holy people from Jerusalem 
the mount, the holy mount and seat of his earthly power. So think of it in these terms, Jerusalem seated there, surrounded by hills and on this prominent position where God reigns. Think of it in these terms as the staging ground of God's glory. And then the temple, as one has put it so beautifully, as the fulcrum for the universe. The very place on earth from which all things are moved. So there is very much a future aspect in Psalm 46. And I think particularly from our standpoint, we could read Psalm 46 and miss this. But think in these terms of a future aspect of the trials of this life that are showing forward where all will end and where the glorious King whom we have sung this morning will establish His rule and His reign in perfect righteousness without sin and without death. Let's look then at an overview of Psalm 46 before working through the details of this tremendous hymn. But we see the stanzas are fairly well defined for us here. You see that word selah that shows up at the end of verse 3, again at the end of verse 7, and then at the end of the psalm, these selahs dividing out the various stanzas for us. And the psalm begins with this declaration, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Note those two ideas of God as with us, present with us, and as our fortress, our refuge. And notice then, we see this same theme concluding at verse 7 in the second stanza. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then in verse 11, concluding that third stanza, we have a summary, basically the same thing said here in verse 11 as we find in verse 7. So the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress, a repetitive refrain on which the psalm ends. You see kind of that theme that is working through, very clearly being emphasized in the psalm. Let's go to the psalm itself then and consider its message to us as God's people. We notice first of all that God is, we could speak of the first stanza in these terms, that God is our ever-present refuge in the midst of nature's fury. I'm calling this verse zero. It's not a typo there, but I'm looking at the heading of the psalm. So you see, perhaps if you're using the ESV, you see that heading, God is our fortress. That's supplied. That's not original text. But the next phrase that you see, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song, this is inspired text. This is original text. And so it's significant to us. There is a choir master that is one in charge of the temple liturgy. And these coming, this song coming from the sons of Korah, who were, into, who were priests, Levitical priests, who worked at the temple on rotation and clearly had uh, capacities in music and writing music, writing poetry. These sons of Korah. It says that this song is according to Alamoth, which is a Hebrew word that speaks of young women. And so, likely, the song was intended for a treble choir. 
for uh, the voices of women to sing this song, and I think there would be a beautiful reason for doing so when you think of the angst of this psalm and the security that we find in God, or perhaps it was intended for high-pitched instruments, but on some level, a shrill declaration of God's purposes and our trust in his ever-present care. Verse 1, the psalm then, as far as officially as the stanza 1 begins, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our mighty fortress, Martin Luther put it, drawing on this psalm. Our God is no pitiable weakling. He is a refuge, a shelter, a strong tower, a fortress. He is always there whenever trouble comes. How strong is our God? What trouble are you talking about? Notice here now the psalmist holds nothing back. He is our refuge. He is our strength. Verse 2, therefore, because this is the case, we will not fear Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The psalmist describes catastrophic upheaval. Nature totters on the verge of chaos, nearly returning to the shapeless form and void of Genesis 1.1. In natural catastrophe, so great, it recalls the Genesis flood. Everything is being shaken and in foment. With nature's fury raging in his mind's eye, the psalmist proclaims with bold confidence, we will not fear. You see the whole world falling apart. And he says, we won't fear. Because God is our refuge. You could say for two reasons. One, God is bigger than the storm. He created it. And secondly, God is ever present with his people as our eternal refuge and strength. So we will not fear, no matter what takes place in the natural world. And I almost hesitate to speak of it this way in the midst of nature's fury, Because of the fact that the Old Testament so commonly uses this type of imagery to describe God's end-time judgment of the nations. So you will see the day of the Lord often referred to in very similar terms of nature's fury, of, of, of the very foundations of the earth being shaken, the stars falling, and these types, this type of idea. So in any event, whether nature's fury or the firestorm of final judgment, God will be there for His people as our refuge and as our strength. If we could go back to Genesis 1-1, when all was formless and void, nowhere to place your feet, nowhere to hold on to, or we go to the Genesis flood and the destruction that took place there as as, uh, the, the world was shaken, Or as we would go to the end time judgment of God himself. No matter how hard this earth shakes, God is your refuge, believer. He is your fortress and you can say in the face of anything, we little puny people that can't even stand a windstorm if we had to on our own. But we can say, 
I will not fear. He is my refuge. He is my strength. The second stanza, God is our ever-present defense in the midst of national turmoil. Verse 4, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. You see the transition here, the change of scene. Verses 1-3, through looking beyond Jerusalem to the world as a source of danger, of tumultuous upheaval and uproar. Here in verse 4, the psalmist moves inside the peaceful city of refuge. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. You see the sea roaring and destroying in verse 3. But in verse 4, this beautiful river flowing peacefully by. The city of God, a reference to Jerusalem, whose temple was occupied by the Shekinah glory, by the glory of God, the visible glorious presence of God hovering over the Ark of the Covenant. What is this river in Jerusalem? Well, it's probably meant to be figurative here. There is a literal spring in Jerusalem, the Gahon Spring, which provided water for Jerusalem once the walls extended and protected that spring. That spring provided water for Jerusalem even in a drought and even in a siege. So if you were besieging the city of Jerusalem and a drought came, the people who were in trouble were not the people inside Jerusalem. The people who were in trouble were you, the besieger, the army that was going up against Jerusalem because that well provided fresh water for the city at all times. So perhaps there's some reference to Gahon Spring or something like that, but I think really there is no particular river flowing through Jerusalem. And I think the idea here is more figurative It speaks of spiritual restoration and renewal. It images the fountains of the Garden of Eden flowing off into the four rivers that hydrated that beautiful garden. It is a river that flows from God's throne in Ezekiel chapter 47. And so I think what this river is, is the peaceful presence of God. God's presence flows to His people as a river of delight a life-giving, life-prospering, Eden-like source of joyful hope that makes the city of God a place of unparalleled gladness. God, verse 5, is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. What is that river? I think that river in the midst of Jerusalem is described here in verse 5. God God is in the midst of Jerusalem. God's presence is with His people and flows to them in grace and goodness and joy. God will help her when morning dawns. That is, God's people must often endure nights of doom and suffering, but the morning always dawns. When God rescues His people. So the nations, verse 6, how are they handling this? How do they respond to this river of delight in God? This peaceful presence in in, in, uh, God's company. How do they respond? Here it is, verse 6. The nations rage. The kingdoms 
totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The kingdom's rage, the Hebrew speaks of roaring with boisterous turbulence and it's a direct parallel to verse 3. So in verse 3, we have the the seas boiling up, roiling with this turbulence. And now in verse 6, the nations are described the same way as this turbulence of sin and rebellion and war. The nations totter. That word, translated totter, is the same Hebrew word translated moved in verse 2. So I think there's a, there's a purposeful connection to nature's fury being reflected in man's fury. The boisterous, tumultuous rage and tottering. So the violence of nature mirrored in the violence of humanity's rage. And God then, verse 6, utters His voice and the earth melts. What is the point? Against all This anxious noise from the nations, God has the final word. And when He speaks, all will listen. Maybe in your growing up or parents, maybe right now, you know that place where the kids get so loud, so after each other, uh, so selfish that they're yelling at the top of their lungs on some sort of fight and the only thing a parent can do is raise the volume even higher to get everybody's attention, right? Stop it! This loud voice coming out and the earth melts. In a sense, that el- illustrates the voice of God here. The nations raging against one another. This tumult of upheaval and sin And God says, stop. He speaks and the earth melts. Reflective, I think, of that end time destruction of the earth before it is reformed. But against all this anxious noise from the nations, God will have the final word. Stay tuned, more on that to come. But the second stanza ends with this refrain and this emphasis again, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. His presence is there and he is a fortress, a refuge, a stronghold for his people. Now someone who does not know God very well might conclude from verses 1 through 7 that God merely comes to the aid of his people whenever they happen to need it. So God is being pictured here, some might think, like a firefighter. In the fire station, kind of minding his own business, and then the sound, the alarm is raised, and he goes running out to help his people when they have need. I think verses 8 through 11 correct that false notion. Let me say it this way at the front and then we'll go through the verses. God does not merely run to our rescue. He runs history. He doesn't merely run to our rescue. He runs history. Third stanza. God is the ever-present arbiter of human history in all that takes place. We read verse 8, 
Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. If it would underline something, there would be the word he. He has brought these desolations. This raging, tumultuous world. God has brought this upon this world. He's not in his firehouse running into the rescue of his people here and there. He is sovereign on the throne of the universe, ruling, bringing these desolations. And we need to be thoughtful of how we apply that, but when armies ravage nations and pestilences ruin crops and nature destroys infrastructures, God sovereignly oversees it all. Such atrocities and catastrophes result from sin in a fallen world. And it's difficult for us to always put together how God reigns sovereignly over such destructive things and desolations, how He brings desolations. But what the Bible will never allow us to do is to draw the conclusion that God sits on the sideline while people oppose Him. He doesn't sit on the sideline. He doesn't merely watch He controls history. So he brings these desolations. And yet, notice verse 9, he makes war cease as well. I'm so thankful for that. It doesn't just say that he makes war cease. But he brings the desolations. He permits people to do the destruction they do, but he also brings it to a stop when he so chooses. He reigns that sovereignly over it all. He makes, verse 9, he makes the wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And his armies rage with bitter hatred toward their enemies, and they'd be willing to destroy the planet in order to prevail. But God does not permit that. He sounds the final horn. Game over on this conflict. So he reigns sovereignly over the conflict as it rages, but also wrecks the war machines when he determines the conflict is over. And he does so by saying, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. How do we read that? I don't think it's wrong for us to read, be still and know that I am God and apply it to our own lives personally. And to say, quiet my soul and sense that God is God and I'm not. I think think that's an appropriate application of this statement. But think of it in context. What is he saying? He's saying, stop it. To the raging world, quit. Be still and know that I am God. Drop your weapons now. Did that run through your heart as you've been watching a city burn here in recent days? Didn't you want to just kind of say to everybody, stop it! Quit doing this! And how hard it was for those in authority to bring these riots to a close, if we could even say they've done that. God can do that. He speaks one word and all melts. 
He says, be still in all ceases. I think the picture we should have here more is of Jesus with the raging sea in the boat. Remember the white caps on the lake nearly sinking the boat, the wind whipping wildly, and nothing but destruction in the face of the disciples. And what did Jesus say? Peace, be still, and the waters were glass. That, I think, is the picture here. God entering into the tumult and saying, Stop. Peace. Why? Verse 10, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Nations exalt themselves. People fight for their own reputation, their own pride. But one day God will say, enough. I will be exalted among the nations. That's where history is moving. In the final day, God will break every war machine and subdue every army and He will rule in perfect righteousness, exalted by the nations, as is perfectly just and perfectly right. And let me just think, just for a moment, about the individual in all of this. This is big history changing stuff but as we think of the individuals we look more narrowly to ourselves there is a raging and a war that goes on in the heart of sinners to break the law of God to go forward in our own pride and promotion there's going to be a day when God says be still and that raging And that war against God in our sin will be all over. If you've not come to a place of repentant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will someday meet Him as your judge. And on that day, all the warring will be over. And justice will be served. For those who've come to know Christ as Savior, we've come in repentance to say, that war has been going on in my soul against you, God. I know it. And through Jesus Christ, I trust your provision for my sin and receive your reconciling grace. And so when we hear, peace be still, it sounds different in our ears, doesn't it? Because reconciliation has been won. Be still and know that I'm God. He alone is God. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. And then the one last glorious refrain on the theme of the psalm, verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Whatever we face, disaster, want, destruction, confusion, Injustice, failed authority, disease, persecution. He is there. And our eternal, impenetrable fortress will never be breached. He is there. Believer, God's not messing around with us here. He's not just telling us things we want to hear. He's a refuge. He's ever-present. He is our hope and our strength. He's not just telling us these things to just tell us what we want to hear. He is edifying our souls with this truth. 
I am your refuge. You need to fear nothing. He is strengthening us to know that we can trust Him come whatever may. If disease or injustice frighten you, He is your present refuge. If persecution and poverty and critics and loneliness and betrayal assault your soul, He is your ever-present refuge. This is the truth. If our governing authorities stumble and our societal systems seem to be on the verge of collapse, remember, God is our mighty fortress and the wellspring of life. I would prefer today to have more time than I'm allotted, but I would love to take these themes and apply them directly to the world in which we have been living, but I wanted us to feed on this truth, not to simply look at what's going on in the world around and to focus all of our time there, but I would love to draw closer application to the raging of our world. It's not too hard to see the parallels, is it? In the raging that we have seen in our city in recent days. The tragic death of George Floyd, the tragic response to that death, the false gospel that is being proclaimed as the solution to our societal troubles, which is nothing more than feeding more societal troubles, how the gospel itself applies to all of the raging that we see in this world. I hope to be able to hit some of these themes by way of application on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. And I would encourage you to be back with us if you're able to do so. Maybe I make a particular appeal to those who are younger among us or teens among us as they're coming to understand their world and put some of these ideas together. I hope we can address them with wisdom, with grace. But until then, and as the time is limited to us here today, May we turn to God as our refuge and know that nothing that's happening is a confusion to Him. That He is the refuge for His people. He draws us in, invites us in. He is ever-present with us. And in the church of Jesus Christ, we come as people from all types of backgrounds to become brothers and sisters in Christ. And to know that forever we are His eternal home. And we find our home in that river of delights that flows from His being. May we put our hope and our trust in that as we deal honestly and I trust faithfully with the trials of the world we now inhabit. Let's bow for prayer as we close. Father, We need you. We come to you as our mighty warrior, as our refuge, as our strength, as the one from whose being rivers of delight flow to us as your people. We have a message to declare that this world needs badly. We have a message to cling to that our souls need very badly every moment of every day. I pray that you deepen us in these truths, that we would cling to you as our refuge and our hope. I pray that you would bless us as we gather on Wednesday night to be able to think through our world and how to respond and how to think as Christians, not simply be swept along by varying 
warring narratives. But may we put our lives, may we synchronize our lives with the great story of redemption that you have won through Jesus Christ. Draw to him those who are separated from the faith that saves and satisfies and brings joy in the soul. And for those of us who have trusted that message, may we now sing and give you thanks for the body of Christ, for what you have done to redeem us, the refuge that you are, the ever-present help and strength. We thank you for who you are. We rest in it. And we praise you today through Christ.